when you're a worship leader, you get an email on Friday from the church office, and you look at it to see what you got to read to see, A, how long it is, B, how many fun names do you have to pronounce in it? I got a good one today. So strap in. We're going to try to get through this one. Um, Our first scripture reading this morning is from the eighth chapter of Nehemiah, found on page 416 in the Old Testament of your Pew Bible. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 10. All the people gathered together into the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. That was on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women, and those who could understand, in the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a wooden platform that had been made for this purpose, and beside him stood, here we go, uh, Mattiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Halku, Messiah, I'm sorry, Messiah, on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malachu, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Yes. <laughs> I've got more still. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabutha, Hudaya, Mesuya, Kalita, Azariah, Juzabad, Hanan, and Peleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, why the people remained in their places. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord, and not to be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. From the Gospel according to Luke, the fourth chapter. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. And a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and the recovery to the sight of the blind 
and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He returned the scroll to the attendant and sat, and all eyes were upon him. The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. Let us hear. Let us hear your word. Because in hearing your word, what we were created to be melds with what to us you have to say. And we become whole. We become your people. To the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen. We arrive today in the book of Nehemiah, the eighth chapter. Now, this particular Hebrew story has been paired by the selectors of the lectionary to go along with our gospel lesson because both the story of Nehemiah 8 and the story of Luke 4 are about the reading of Scripture to the people. In our gospel lesson from Luke, Jesus has come home from graduate school and stops by his childhood synagogue in Nazareth. He's been lecturing in the neighboring towns, and everyone now wants to see if the word about their hometown kid is true to his reputation. Jesus finds this particular passage in the scroll of the book of Isaiah, most likely scroll number three. Isaiah is a long book, and he reads the verses that we refer to as chapter 61, verses 1 and 2a. He didn't finish the second verse. He doesn't finish verse 2, instead he just takes and rolls the scroll back up and hands it to the reference librarian and sits down to begin his lecture. And as we read, every eye was on him. Now Everybody was looking at him, not only because he was the hometown kid come back to give a sermon, they're all looking at him because he left out what they thought was the best part of that verse. Everybody in the room knew the passage so well that they were all aware he had left something out. Now we'll get back to the piece that Jesus left out, but today's that's where the gospel lesson ends, and so we got to loop around and figure out what's going on with Nehemiah, because Nehemiah's circumstances are significantly more complicated, if not for the reason that there are a whole bunch of names of people that I made David read this morning. He did a better job than I had hoped, so it wasn't as much fun as I was planning. <laughs> Let me give you a little background. Go back to 539 B.C. in the way back machine, Mr. Peabody. Cyrus the Great has just conquered the Chaldeans, who at the time were running Babylonia. Actually, conquering the Chaldeans is a much more dramatic term. By the time Cyrus the Great got to Susa, the capital of Babylon, the Chaldeans had watched him essentially obliterate every other empire, so they kind of handed him the keys to Susa and said, okay, you win. So he was by that time known, Cyrus the Great was known as the King of Kings. He had so many kings under him that it was like he had a nation that was occupied just of kings, and of course he's one of them, had their own realm under their own authority. Cyrus was perhaps the most amazing conqueror prior to Alexander the Great, Except Alex uh, had really serious struggles with narcissistic depression and alcoholism. Cyrus, on the other hand, was far more interested in ruling the world rather than crushing it. As a result, he instituted many political reforms that governors 
quite frankly, did not see on this earth again for another 2,500 years. For example, Cyrus the Great outlawed slavery. All the peoples who had been pressed into exile by their former Babylonian captors were told they could go home. This made him outrageously popular and deeply loved. He realized that ruling by fear was not as powerful or as enduring as ruling by grace. And so compared to other ancient rulers, by the time Cyrus comes along and founds the Achaemenid Empire, life was fairly civilized by ancient terms. Among the happy returnees were the Jews, who after 70 years of captivity in Babylonia were pretty excited to pack up and go back to the homeland. Many, however, stayed. Jobs were better in Susa, and literate administrators were well paid. So many stayed in Babylonia, even though they could have returned home. Time moved on, as did various rulers. Uh, Cyrus died and was replaced by Cambyses II. Uh, Darius I followed Cambyses, and Darius I then came Xerxes, whose son was Artaxerxes. None of these names are going to be on the midterm. Artaxerxes reigned after his father, and about 140 years had gone by, with the exception of Egypt, the Achaemenid Empire was still intact. Egypt was really, really hard to hold on to. And Cyrus had established such a stable system of governance that for these 14 decades, it continued to be run underneath of the great Persian Empire. There's this guy whose name is Nehemiah, and he works as an advisor to Artaxerxes, the emperor. Nehemiah is Jewish, and he has relatives back in Jerusalem. Likely, he had great-grandparents who had gone back to Jerusalem with the emancipation under Cyrus. And so he had cousins back in the homeland, and he would get mail from them. He gets a postcard from his family back in Jerusalem, and it tells him how the old city of David, the Grand Jerusalem, is actually kind of a mess. No walls, no centralized authority. They started working on the temple, but 140 years had gone by, and they barely dug a new foundation. Nehemiah was sitting at his desk in his office reading with this when Artaxerxes calls him in. And when he comes in to speak to the emperor, Nehemiah approaches the king, and immediately Artaxerxes recognizes there's a problem. Art says to Nehemiah, why, why are you so sad? Somebody die? Nehemiah confesses that things in the home of his ancestors are really bad. Various gangs are tormenting the returnees and they're barely able to eke out a living, let alone reorganizing the building of a whole city to establish anything of administrative competence. And he just feels bad for the home of his ancestors. Artaxerxes sits back and thinks for a moment, turns to Nehemiah and says, what if I appointed you as governor over Judah? I mean, it is after all my kingdom and I can name whoever I want. What if you, Nehemiah, were the governor, and you arrived in Jerusalem with all of the civil authority, along with some architects and some builders and some soldiers, uh, to be able to help you rebuild your people's city. Suited up then with a security detail and papers and money, Nehemiah heads off to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, the city of his ancestors. As the book goes on, there are several examples of really great administration by Nehemiah. If you want to look at administrative detail in the Hebrew Scriptures, Nehemiah gives a really decent example. He 
divides the people into work groups and he sets up catering for the builders and he allows people to continue to work their own land but as they have a little bit more resources now uh, they begin to restore they're harassed for a while by local gangs so much so that the builders uh, are building with their left hand and holding swords with their right hand and so Nehemiah sends a note off to Artaxerxes and says is there anything you can do to help well he sends from Susa the Grand Capital of Babylon a regiment that comes in and makes quick work of the local hoodlums uh, and so the building continues uh, there are now walls and Ezra has begun the construction of the temple they have restored the sewage and draining systems in the city they have restored the water wells throughout the city and cleaned out the muck so people have good drinking water It was beginning to look like a real city except the question was who are these people or as Seinfeld would say who are these people their identity was in doubt at this point they shared kind of a split identity there were former exiles from Babylon that had come back and their descendants and then there were the locals who had never been carted off in the first place literacy had plummeted to an all-time low the prayers and the festivals that once united them as a Jewish people had not been celebrated for over a hundred years nearly 200 years had gone by and they had nothing that energized them as a common people so even Hebrew their common language was really no longer spoken they spoke some combination of Aramaic and Chaldean and Nehemiah realized that he had a problem because whether they had a temple or a city they also needed an identity so by the water gate Ezra was told to read the law of Israel to the children of Israel to read to them the words that were constitutive of their identity who are these people you have in common a book now we don't know what portions of the law were read we do know that it took almost all day as the people stood and heard the law read but among the other things that were read I'm pretty confident that Ezra shared these words with the children of Israel from now very diverse backgrounds Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohenu Adonai Echad Hachavet Adonai Elohenu Modehacha Bakol Vahakarol Akol Nahavsha Akol Mahakadena Vahahenu Hachacham Hala You think you had tough names As Ezra read the Levites translated because very few of them knew Hebrew and so they came through and they would repeat the text and say do you understand and they'd say eh, not exactly and so in the Aramaic and Chaldean they would speak it and then they would talk about what the words meant and these are the translations of what those words were hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your might that from the book of Deuteronomy and doubtless from the book of Leviticus he read you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself I am the Lord 
And as the words were read and as they were explained to the crowd, the people began to weep. Yeah, they were home. But now they were a people. Now they were kin. Which ricochets now, 400 years into the future, a rabbinic student named Jesus has returned home from traveling studies, and he's just read in his home synagogue from the book of Isaiah. Now, they're not in exile, but they are under foreign domination. This time it's not the Chaldeans or the Persians, but the Romans. They want their own home without the intrusion of foreigners. And the passage that Jesus reads from the 61st chapter of the book of Isaiah The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the part Jesus left out, here's the phrase that got the attention because it was not said, the second half of the second verse and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus didn't say that. He drops that phrase from the reading. If he had a mic, he would have dropped that too. Their favorite verse, the one about vengeance. No wonder all eyes were on him. How dare he leave out the part about revenge? Except that troubling verse. From Leviticus 19.18, the voice of Ezra echoing from the water gate four centuries before, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What makes a people God's people? What gives identity to a congregation or a community or a country? I believe this is a fundamental question facing us. It is a core question with which we are currently struggling. What makes us a people? Let me conclude with two quotations from the late Desmond Tutu. Anglican Bishop of South Africa. When apartheid felled, the racial divisions of that South African nation, Desmond Tutu realized that something needed to happen in order for the people to be both cleansed but unifying. And he created the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in which people who had been brutalized under the previous administration, all kinds of brutality, not just black against white, but also white against white and black against black, came before the commission and told their truth of what they had experienced under the repressive apartheid government. And that was the first, the truth. And then there was the reconciliation. The reconciliation was, after all of this had been spoken, the people were to look their oppressors, their brutalizers, their bullies in the eye and say, you are now kin, and I will let go of what has happened. Tutu said, without memory, there is no healing. You got to tell the story as it happened. Without memory, there is no healing. But without forgiveness, there is no future.
Forgiveness is the absolute necessity for continued human existence. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people. But you, you, this is who you are. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Amen. You know, when I shake my finger, I don't, I don't necessarily mean you individually. I'm shaking my finger maybe at the front page of my news feed uh, or of, of, of others. I mean, all of us have things that we need to reconcile in our lives, but some things need to be said and said very, very clearly. Prayers about the divisions between us. Confessions about my desire for revenge. I got to confess that there's a little sick thing that goes on in me, and this is our prayer request time, not our sermon. The sick thing that goes on in me is every time someone who is unvaccinated ends up in intensive care and whines about the fact that they should have been vaccinated, there's a piece of me that goes, (laughs) vengeance, isn't that karma great? Or every time somebody in the political party that I'm not really proud of right now ends up being indicted or called to testify, there's a piece of me that goes, ah, we're going to get theirs, yeah, it's going to happen. That's not the best of who we are called to be as the people of God. Truth must be spoken. There cannot be healing. But forgiveness has to happen or there cannot be future. How do we figure out to love our neighbors as ourselves so the things we desire for us and our household are the same things we desire even for the households of those who we maybe think are our enemies but they are still our neighbors. Our prayer is for that complicated work. (laughs) Our prayer is to be able to squelch that vengeful voice within ourselves and perhaps even acknowledge it and forgive it and step forward as the people of God. If we can do that amongst ourselves, if we can do that amongst our own sphere of contact and relationship, there is a hopeful future. If we can model that in our families and in our gatherings and in our community, we will offer hope that right now the world is not interested in sharing. Everything we face is pushing against us, asking us to divide and pick sides and demonize the other, everything, except the words of God, love God. That's easy. Love neighbor, (laughs) that's a command. Are there other prayers for which we should join our hearts?
way in the back, John Hall. Harry, starting a, a cancer treatment. Prayer for their success. Yes, Lynn. Can we have a name, just a first name? Naomi. Naomi. Surgery on Wednesday. Others? Balcony, thank you. Congratulations. <laughs> Wish you'd get your husband to come to church. <laughs> Although I could probably say that to a lot of people. You'd say it to me, Danny's not here today. Any others? Continue in prayers with people who are trying to figure out how much longer we're supposed to wear masks. Um, figure out, you know, what the best practices are. On a really local level, that's going to be your session this Wednesday when we gather for our, our session meeting. Um, you know, we, we go over this stuff. We don't make it up. You know, we really do deliberate and try and figure out best practices. Um, pass those along to you. Um, you know, pray for us. Because, uh, you know, we're... We're, we're not, uh, not, the crystal ball that tells how the future looks is, seems to be broken. Um, Hank Anderson took it when he left the pastor here, I understand. Any others? Let's unite our hearts in prayer, shall we? How awkward it is to look at the future. It's awkward because sometimes... It's the past that sticks in our heads. Sometimes the past that sticks in our heads is so grand and glorious that it maybe never even actually happened that way. But we like to think of it that way because it kind of makes us think that uh, we're coming out good. And so we want to defend that version of the story, except when we look forward with such a grand and gilded past behind us, we realize that uh, we're not made of the kind of stuff that created those kinds of stories. Maybe there's more to it. And as we begin to unpack, we, we discover in our past, in our collective memory, in the shared experience of ourselves and our neighbors, uh, that there were some sinners back there that look a lot like our sinners today. And so as the whole truth comes forward, and as we grapple with it, remind us, O oh Lord, that your grace is sufficient not only to cover our immediate iniquities, but also to cover the sins of our past. And in that forgiveness, we have hope for a future. Help us with those from whom we are estranged to find the grace, to understand what forgiveness looks like, and to seek the good hope and health and strength of our neighbors. Mm -hmm.